Hey, Linux Journal. Welcome to episode four of our new podcast, Reality 2.0. I'm Catherine Druckmann, and I am here with Doc Searles, our editor-in-chief. I was like, what is he this week? And Kyle Rankin, our technical editor at Linux Journal. And also some other things. And uh, Kyle, why don't you tell us a little bit about all the cool things you're up to and who you are? Okay, cool, yeah. So in addition to the work I've been doing with Linux Journal for over a decade now, wow. Um, uh, in addition to that, uh, during the day, by day, I am chief security officer for a company called Purism. And we make uh, computer hardware that's focused sort of on security and privacy and runs free software. So if that's an elevator pitch, there's the elevator pitch. Sounds like a good one. So what you're saying is you know all the things that we need to know. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, you're supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> I'm supposed to. Yeah, I know I know I know a couple of things. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty great because some of us don't. Or some of us at least feel like we could learn a lot more. And um it's along the Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Oh, uh, so it's tough because it's hard to always know the right thing because people are giving such bad advice all the time. You know, um, I mean, the best example is password advice. There's been a couple of decades of horrible password advice that people have been given, and then they try to follow it. And then when they follow it, they get hacked. And then all the security people point their finger at them and say, well, you stupid user, you got hacked. You picked the bad password. And they said, yeah, but I was... Pick the password you told me to pick. It had some numbers at the end. It had an uppercase letter or whatever. I put an exclamation point at the end. Um, yeah. So it's. I mean, it's it's tricky because there's a lot of there's a lot of bad advice floating around out there. That, that's that's a great point. I'm. Oh God, I I'm gonna get hacked, aren't I? So <laughs> so Kyle, tell us uh, tell us. So what are what are the things that that people like me? I'm just gonna put myself out there people who are generally speaking pretty tech savvy but but still what are the things that that some of us may be doing that are a little bit more obvious and easy to fix what what is your best advice for staying secure sure at a very uh, so, basic level yeah i mean at the at the basic level i sort of mentioned passwords already and at a basic level that if someone were to say what's the the first thing i can do to protect myself online i would say figure out how you're going to organize your passwords. And that these days, that means a password manager, because what is a safe password um, is a really crazy kind of unmemorable random string of text, which is which is unfortunate, because but that's how it is. Um, and if you combine that with everyone's recommendation that you don't reuse passwords on different sites, then that leaves you with, okay, well, I have 50 passwords I have to remember but the best passwords aren't memorable. Uh, so what I'm, or if you're doing passphrases, um, long passphrases, then you have 50 long passphrases to remember, which is just challenging. Um, so that means you need a password manager because that's it, it's your nice Rolodex. So now I'm dating myself um, for, <laughs> all of, <laughs> for all of your passwords. Um, so it's a nice place to store everything. And then you know, if you use something like a password manager, it does a couple of things. One it puts all of that, all of those passwords in one place. So it's easy for you to back up. Um, it also, some of them have really nice features that make it easy to automatically fill in uh, username and password fields and that sort of thing. 
which is handy. Uh, and beyond all of that, it means that it reduce, dramatically reduces the amount of passwords that you have to remember yourself. So if you use a, a nice password manager, then all you really have to remember are the password to get into your password manager and maybe you know like the password to log into your machine or things like that there's only a handful then that, and then as a result because you only have to remember a couple of passwords you can make those remaining passwords very strong uh because you in a nice strong uh passphrase a number of words that you can remember and then you don't have to worry about all you know all of the random websites if you find out that one of the many websites you use gets hacked um, and they tell you to change the password, you're not fretting about, oh, well, now I have to change my password on everything else too, or what was the password? You just go and go to your password manager and change it. And another nice thing about those is usually they have some sort of tool that lets you uh, generate a, a random password right. for you based on whatever the, everybody, no one can just can agree on what the rules should be for generating a password either. So you'll go to one site and you'll type in a super strong, I've done this before, I'll, I'll type in a super strong password and it'll tell me it's not strong enough because it needs, you know, extra symbols or something stupid. Right. Uh, <laughs> combination right? of capitals. Exactly. It's, it's dumb. And so for me, it, if I have, so then I just go to my password manager and say, okay, let me, what do they say their dumb rule is? And so then I put it into my password manager and say, make me a password that they won't complain about. And then it does. Um, and then I'm, I'm not left having to memorize all of this stuff, right? So I just have a file, um, like a little database that has all, all of these passwords in it. And whenever I need one, I can I can just go into it. I don't have to worry about it. So that's probably the first thing. And then follow right at the end of that, sort of following that up, the next thing would would be for all of the sites that support some sort of uh, multi-factor authentication. So uh, whether that's some sort of phone SMS, which is sort of like level one of doing this, where they send you a text message, um, it which works, but you know. If they do something better than that, it's even better. So um, something like um, an app on your phone that um, where you get the six-digit code that shows up on your phone. That's usually they talk. They call that TOTP. If you see those words, um, all the way into nowadays, even better is a a little security key um, that some some sites are starting to support. It's it's wider spread than it was a couple of years ago, thankfully, but and not as widespread as it could be, where you have a little key that you plug in and push a button on those keys um, and it and it communicates with the website and helps you authenticate. So um, so yeah, step one is get a password manager so you can change all of your passwords to be different for every site and not have to remember them. And then step two is to back that up with some kind of second factor in case somehow the password is compromised, you um, have some you, you add an extra hurdle getting into your accounts. That's great advice. I read a really terrifying article the other day about how uh, certain mobile carriers are um, subject to sort of human human hacking where people will call up and somehow get your account switched over to their SIM card and then they have your two-factor too. Just That happened to Sean. It did? Oh, Sean. Of course, Sean. Oh, he does everything right and then some T-Mobile employee. Oh well, I shouldn't disparage. Well, anyway, some random, random, totally not T-Mobile uh, uh, carrier sells them out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, I, and I think in his case it wasn't. Sorry, go ahead, Doc. Yeah. So, so some of us, um, uh, especially those of us who are 
veterans and who started out. I mean, like I, like you know, I started. I went on the web in like '95, maybe even earlier. Um, so I'm looking at my password manager. I'll use one. I won't say who it is because I have problems with them, frankly. But, um, and I'm looking at my password breakdown here. It says I have 137 safe, 495 compromised, and 100 weak. And and I'm embarrassed by how many it says are reused. I, I can't believe it's that high. But anyway, the the so going in and changing these, like they say, okay, you you can do this here, but every freaking one of these things has its own way of requiring that you go in to change the password. And 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 often what will happen is you'll have the password manager generate a password. And then it'll say, would you like us to remember this? And you say, okay, yeah, of course I want you to remember it. You just made it up for me. Why would I remember it? I have you for that. And then it doesn't. <laughs> this has happened I don't know how wow. many times. I don't know how many times that's happened. And what I've been told is, no, go use this other one, right? Um, and I have to say, I have remarkably little faith. Uh, and just because change, working with this one is so arduous and part of what i pine for is if you told me in 1995 that we'd still be using logins and passwords in 2018 i'd have said what went wrong i why have we not moved past this is is our logins and passwords like the end state for personal security online is there not something better somewhere and I, I almost wonder whether as developers are wearing some kind of blinders because we're so used to this it's sort of like well we've had swords and shields for a long time we don't need guns you know I, we have these you know these have these have worked for a long time and I, it, I mean here's something sort of related to it um when i lived in north carolina i once found a uh, a spear point a big this big indian arrowhead thing but it was really long and and uh, I took it to a friend and who was an anthropologist there. Oh, yeah, that's the Guilford spear point. Um, and you look up the Guilford culture, and it was like from 8,000 B.C. to 3,000 B.C. And they didn't make the tools any differently that entire time. 5,000 years. Wow. I mean, anyway, so I, but I almost wonder whether there's something like that that's going on in the tech world where... We're so used to doing things a certain way that we can't think outside that box. So I'm wondering from your perspective whether you think there's hope for that or are we just going to be stuck in login and passwordville for the duration? Sure, yeah, uh, that's a great question. So basically we have three ways that we can use to prove we are who we say we are, We get to authenticate ourselves. Um, so the three categories are something you know, something you have, and something you are. And so something you know, um, the most common example is a password. Uh, something you have would be, say, a, you know, a key in your pocket or a, you know, some sort of membership card or something like that. And then something you are would be a biometric of some kind. So mm -hmm. a signature, a fingerprint, and a face scan or whatever. Uh, so you know, when you, uh, ideally, you would have a combination of those those three things and the more combinations of those things you have it, it you know on on paper at least the better it is obviously if all all three whatever you pick for all three are horrible then it's not great but but the idea is they're all different so 
when you uh, use a credit card um, in some locations, you both have to present the card. So that's something you have. You have to sign with a signature. That's something that you are, that's your biometric, um, essentially. And then you also have to sometimes enter in a PIN. Uh, so in particular, you know, so that, and that's something you know. And so the idea is, you know, there's different attacks against those three different types of things. And so the reason we've stuck, passwords have stuck around so long is that it's difficult to, it, there hasn't been a whole lot of better alternatives for the something you know aspect of it. Yeah. And so what people have done is a lot of times when they want to make it easy, they write these days, the most common way that people try to make it easy is to use biometrics, which um, makes it easy, but it's not necessarily better. Um, so, you know, you'll have for a long time, you know, every phone had some sort of fingerprint reader um, mm -hmm. and it's better than nothing, which and that's the thing is I've, I've long said negative things about biometrics, but what I probably should have been more clear whenever I've been negative about it is it's, it's the weakest, in my opinion, of the three choices for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, each of them have their problems, uh, but, but it's still better than what most people would be doing on their phones without it, which is nothing. You know, a lot of the people mm -hmm. that use a, you know, a fingerprint because it's very convenient to unlock your phone. And a lot of people, if they didn't have that option, if they had to draw a symbol or, punch in a passcode, they wouldn't set anything or they would go the Kanye route and just hit a bunch of zeros. Uh, right. So, you know, and so it's not any better. It's, right. Um, so, yeah. Have, so yes. Yeah. So a couple of things. There. One is an irony about the something, you know, is that we're now the only we can't the, in order, the very first point you made is the irony of it, which is that um, if it's knowable, it's not secure. <laughs> so uh, if you've made it up, then it, it's already compromised. It has to be, it almost has to be generated by some kind of external service to make sure that even you don't remember it. And um, and so that requires that you use some other authority, like, you know, use a, a password manager. Um, and meaning it's not something you know. But, but besides that, I, I'm, I'm wondering if, if you've, looked at like uh you know i'm fairly close to it which is why i bring it up which is uh the sovereign foundations approach which is that you this is more like something you have it's it's um the idea is that all you need to do in most cases is pre present a verifiable claim you know i only need to show the bar that i'm over 18. uh they don't need to know the rest of it um and if i have something that's a credential like a driver's license or a proxy for a driver's license that says, yeah, this guy's over 18, that'll do the job. And and that sort of reduces the opportunity for failure to some degree. And then, you know, a lot of this is recorded on a blockchain or something like a blockchain, which is the sovereign approach. That's S-O-V-R-I-N, by the way, not the longer spelling, the French spelling. Have, have you looked at those at all, or is that outside your... I mean, scope? I haven't looked at... Yeah, I haven't looked at that particular approach, but in in general, yeah, I mean, you'll see a lot of examples of that sort of thing where you depend. It, it what it highlights is that what how you how you authenticate can vary and be more or less sophisticated or more or less complex depending on what you're trying to protect and the threats against it. Yeah. So, for instance, you know, a lot of times. Uh, much was made every now and then you'll see some 
some um, well-known tech person was involved in one of these breaches where a bunch of emails and passwords were figured out and they found out that someone was using a lame password. And then it'll come to find out that person, yeah, well, I didn't care about that service. I put in a lame password on purpose because I didn't care. It, I, there was no risk to me of losing that. So I didn't really, it didn't really matter. Um, but at the same, so, so some, you know, when you're authenticating to some services or some, you're trying to prove, for example, that you're just old enough to drink or whatever, um, then you only sort of need one verifier. But then, you know, but if you're, for example, wanting to do a major transaction in your bank, then you would probably want to have extra layers because of the what you're the risk you're trying to protect against. So that's why, you know, if you lose your credit card and you call into a and you're traveling and you call into your credit card company mm -hmm. to try to replace it, they're going to ask you a bunch of questions, right? They're going to go through all, make you jump through all sorts of hoops. Yeah. And the idea is, you know, that that the scenario that you are currently in is the same exact scenario that every attacker will pretend to be in, um, and so they have to somehow weed. Uh, you out and prove that you are the right person compared to all of the attackers who also are really good at, at sounding like you. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, one of those ways is what is something in your brain that can't be in anyone else's brain, but that's only good if the thing in your brain is hard to guess, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that I, I wonder about, and I, I'm certainly facing it myself, for example, with this password manager, which is a, a sort of a decision that I've often made, I, you know, which is, is it, which is harder, the, or, or which is the, you know, what should I do here? Meaning, should I go to the very labor intensive trouble of correcting all 600 or something of these different password issues by going to 600 different websites? Um, and I almost feel like I would have to. A lot of them I haven't been to in years, but that's I'm exposed there, right? I there's according to this thing. Well, maybe I use the password, or or all of their shit got stolen, and there's a password sitting in there that I might have used somewhere else. So I have to pay attention to all of them. But the labor involved is like you know a, a week of downtime to to do all of this. On the one hand, um, you know, or just you know suffering the consequences and hoping they or and hope, hoping they don't happen. It, it's it's kind of like you know we're making these bets at all all the time, especially if you've been around a long time, uh, a long time like I have. It, it, it's sort of oh, it was something that was related to that. I was going to bring up that's that that was similar, but any I don't know I lost it, so I'll I'll let it go with that one, which is where where I think oh I know what it was was the credit card thing. So sometimes I'm I th I I pause before. I would report to my credit card company that I think I lost my wallet, but I'm not sure. Or, um, you know, because or I misplaced my credit card and I just want to know whether something's happened. They will say most of the time, okay, we have to regard that as a lost card because you called us. We're giving you a new number. And all of a sudden, everything I've used that credit card for, I have to go back and change it again because I have a new credit card number. And that's a pain in the ass. So it's it's like this. There's this sort of economic decision that we're making all the time about whether or not we even report this stuff or we try to deal with it because trying to deal with it involves so much labor. Right. Well, and your credit card example is a good example sort of in favor of password managers in this sense, in the sense that 
if you are if one of those many sites that you have accounts on gets compromised, but each of them has a different password, right. then you don't really have to worry about it, right? I mean, that's sort right, of like yeah. the, the the whole point of that, right? And so, so at least in that case, you only have to worry about changing your password on that one site instead of on fifty sites because you're you know you're sharing right. it. Or yeah. a lot of people in the olden days they would have here's my weak password and then here's my bank password. Um, here's my really, I rem, you know, they have like two or three passwords they would remember. They'd have like the the easy one for everything. Then they'd have their real, their good one that they probably use for work and they use for their bank, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then one of those things gets breached. I mean, the biggest one that happened that was that sort of that sort of changed a lot of this was there was a a um, company called Rocku that made sort of like integrated Facebook applications. And they were hacked. Um, I forget the year now. Um, this is quite a while ago now. And the, what was significant about their hack versus all of the many other breaches that have happened where people have dumped password databases was that theirs was relative was recent enough, um, but all of the passwords were stored in plain text. So password crackers didn't have to try to crack anything. They were just there for, to look at. And it provided this really great analysis tool to look at what at that time were the most popular passwords being used without having to crack anything. And it also revealed a bunch of passwords that otherwise would have been very difficult to guess uh, that were just stored in that database. And immediately once that came out, every password cracker started putting, added that database into their dictionary of words to use um, and were able to get a lot more passwords out of it. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I don't know if anybody's seen this, but you know there there's this uh, um, extortion scam uh, that we see where you, uh, a lot of lately where you get a, an email that says "dear" and then the the name that they use is a password you used twenty years ago. Um, yeah. You know, let's say it's one two three four five, right? <laughs> you know, or or in Kanye's case, "dear five zeros. You know, yeah. I've been in your machine and I know what you've looked at and I'm and I'm going to unless you send me 2000 um, Bitcoin in the next uh, 24 hours, I'm going to expose all that on the Internet. And uh, and it's it, it's sort of interesting because I've I've gotten, a, I think, two of these and and they were both like, um, you know, from from ancient history. But I but I, I think it's sort of like every time there's one of these breaches, I think just part of what you're saying that they're. Is that the intelligence of the bad guys just gets multiplied too? Yeah. Well, and and the other aspect of this is is password recovery is the other link in this chain that often gets gets overlooked, and that's why sometimes with some of these major services now, they add all of these extra hoops, just like um, when you lose your credit card, uh, because uh, an attacker can also say, "Hey, I forgot my password." If the recovery for a particular site's weak, then that makes you know then that makes it easier for an attacker to take over your account by using the recovery, even if they can't guess your password. So, one way that this often would would happen is someone would use the same password for a couple of sites. One of those sites would get hacked, but they also happen to use that password for their email. And since everyone uses their email as the login, the attacker would go to that site, wherever you know Gmail or Yahoo or whatever. Yeah. And try the password. Oh, it works. Great. Well, I'm going to try it on all the other sites they have accounts on. And the ones I can't get into via um, just using the same password, if they happen to use a different password for their bank, I'll go to the bank and reset the password. 
And then it'll send me a nice little link to the inbox I now have control over. And then they take over the account that way. That's why you're starting to see a lot of um, bigger companies like like Facebook, Google, et cetera, that add all these extra steps. Although it, the, the troublesome thing is, for example, Facebook recently, it came out that if you added your phone number uh, so that, you know, if someone tries to reset your password or recover your account, they would send you a text message or call you. If you added that just for security, but you didn't add it to your regular profile, uh, there was this ex expectation that, okay, well, that's just for security. That's I'm not giving you my data, it's just for security. Um, and it turns out that within, I think it was 10 days that they sold that phone number to marketers who would then integrate it with the rest of the, the dossier they have on you and further use it to target, right? And so that among the other problems with that, a, a problem with that is that now everyone's going to second guess um, when someone asks them for something for security reasons, uh, because they can see that, well, maybe the state is going to be exploited. You know, I, I wonder for, uh, to some degree for our, our readership, which is for the most part relatively sophisticated, but we're hoping to get more people listening to this podcast as well. I, I'm thinking about how people you know lately they're you know part of this the argument for using a password manager which is an external service um uh is that these services are far more capable than we are as individuals of of handling um major security issues for example and 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 i was thinking in, in particular about what happened years ago actually but it's it's a an illustrative case i i ran so I'm, I'm a big fan of of distributed everything and i'm a big fan of everybody rolling their own and and personal independence and everybody having their own little castle on the internet that's well guarded and it's yours and and you're not living inside somebody's silo you don't have to be inside google or amazon or one of these places um and so i ran my own server i still do i still have a linux server it's a it's sitting in a rack somewhere um at Rackspace, but that's basically just where it lives it's a it's a it's a board with a drive on it and it and it's searles.com which is my um domain and i have a lot of files on there nothing terribly important but i ran my own mail server there i had my S smtp and imap server and then found that with the help of a geek much more capable than me, that somebody got into there and it was actually had set up a porn site, distribution site, on the server somewhere that was serving up porn. And um, with a unique IP address and shit, you know, that, that was like a subdomain of, of mine. And, um, and it turned out it was, they got in there because one of the email addresses I had, which was my sister's, had a very insecure password. It was basically the name of a city and a couple numbers. And obviously some machine threw, you know, guesswork at that spot and got in there and did what they did. And so we moved our email to the, the um, after I realized it was all past my competence level to Rackspace's cloud and they do a fantastic job. It's still searles.com, but it's in the cloud. There's somebody I can call. There's a throat to choke. They're very, very helpful. They really know their stuff. And, and I'm wondering, you know, for the, the DIY people among us, have we reached the point 
where in order to be secure, you really can't be doing it all yourself. You, you really need to bring to bring in the to, to locate your stuff in other places or to bring in capacities that are just above anybody's pay grade. And I, I don't know if there's a good answer for that, but I'm just wondering to if you could say a few things about toward the sensibilities that probably a lot of people in our in our subscriber base and listenership have, which is I'm I'm gonna run my own thing. Right. Well I mean, you know, so I'm gonna going to veer off from what a lot of security experts would say here because uh, a lot of security experts are very vocal about you should never run your own email. Um, yeah. When they say that, they what they mean, what what they are really kind of saying is they're saying it from the perspective of someone who's giving advice to a corporation with say you know 100 to 50,000 employees or something, uh, which is running an email service for that kind of a size of an organization is pretty tricky, especially doing it securely with all of the risks. And if you're not sure what you're doing, of course, you ideally could hire people that knew what they were doing, but you could out, you should outsource that. Of course, a lot of that advice is also coming from security experts who work for one of the companies that you can outsource that to. So you have to take it with a grain of salt. Um, but for me, I'm going to veer away from that and say, if you're talking about self-hosting uh, and you're not, talk, you're not talking about an enterprise where there's extra comp complexities to it, that it's not the end of the world to host your own still. Uh, the main thing that you have to figure out is dealing with uh, is dealing with the spam problem. And if you're willing to, you know, you could either spend all your time worrying about it, or if you're willing to live with the occasional spam message that comes through, it's not that tricky for a DIYer who who would be listening to this podcast to not only make a, an email server, I mean, we have plenty of guides on Linux Journal about how to do this. I've written yeah, a lot right. of them. I know, yeah. Um, and, but also, you know, this isn't supposed to be a plug, but that, the, the challenge is that, for m my own stuff, but uh, you know, the challenge is on the modern internet, there are a lot of security protocols that you should also be adhering to. In the case of email, we're talking about uh, pro things like SPF, Sender Policy Framework, um, DKIM, DMARC, you know, acronyms like that. And out of the box, it may be, you know, your average person who may want to set up an email server may try to send email and then find out that, oh, my emails aren't getting delivered because there's all of these extra standards. I'm not these basically for spam, these standards I'm not complying with, uh, which is why one of the when I was started working on a book on server hardening, one of the things I really wanted to focus on was a whole chapter on email uh, where I just talked through step by step how to set up SPF, how to set up DKIM and DMARC, because it's not that it's difficult. When you see the steps, it's just, okay, you run this, you do this, you do this. Just like setting up anything yourself. Um, you just do the steps, right? But if you don't know what the steps are, you don't know even that those things exist, then you're sort of in the woods. So I would say if you're talking about you know, personal or family, while a lot of security researchers would scare you away from running your own email or doing other things yourself, um, I still think it's doable. And I don't think it's that unachievable to set that stuff up. Now you need to, for, as your as your example points out, you need to be careful about passwords for accounts that are on there. But again, there are um, tools you can use to, to put restrictions on passwords that people can use when they set up a password on your email server. Um, so yeah, I still think it's doable. And especially for a, a, a family, uh, it's not, I mean, you don't need a whole lot of resources to do email. Uh, storage is cheap. 
you don't need a lot of network bandwidth. The biggest challenge most people will have if they want to do it at their house is just the fact that a lot of ISPs don't allow outbound email connections because of spam. Uh, so you may have to look into hosting it somewhere outside of your home for that reason, uh, depending on your ISP. But other than that, I mean, it's, it's not really that difficult. The, the free software tools are out there. Um, there's a lot of documentation on the subject. A lot of it's on Linux Journal already. Um, so, you know, it's not that it's not that bad. I, I wouldn't scare people away from it for security reasons. I mean, the biggest thing is the same issue with Internet of Things. It's you need to keep things up to date. Um, I mean, it's the same problem that every enterprise has with their own infrastructure is the challenge of keeping things up to date. If you're a DIYer and you only have a handful of one or two servers, it's not that hard to keep those up to date. You know, if you're an enterprise, you know, tons of right. enterprises struggle just with basic patching because they have a fleet of, you know, thousands of servers and, and not an integrated way to do it. But as a DIYer, you can actually be ahead of the game compared to some of those orgs just because you can keep things up to date easier. So, so here's here's an unrelated question. Um, uh, I, at, at one extreme, we have the DIY person who's, in most cases, I think, too small an operator to be interesting to bad guys. Um, and then you have the ones that are extremely interesting to bad guys. I know uh, Scott Bradner, who uh, ran security for Harvard University for a long time, I mean, a very long time, said that, uh, an institution like Harvard is under attack at all times. There is never an attack not going on there for one reason or another or from one quarter or another. But in between are organizations, say, this size of yours with purism. And how much are you mindful of, of that? And, and I mean, for sort of a small to mid-sized business like that, how much how much attacking is happening? How much is, I mean, I guess, how much are you like a... A direct attack by some bad guy or just caught within the general maliciousness that sort of exists in the universe and and how do you look toward that i'm just curious if, for a couple yeah. of that size yeah i mean for someone our size or with with the brand awareness that we have at this current stage i i don't think we're as much a direct target um although as as more and more people find out about us then we would be more of one so then we fall more into the general background of the fact that the Internet's full of automated attacks that then get a foothold somewhere, then use that server as a as a place to launch more automated attacks. Right. So, you know, at, at, there was a point on the Internet where you could maybe say, well, I'm no one special. No one's going to come after me because they don't you know, I'm nobody important. Um, but that that era is sort of long gone at this point mm. because. It's so easy to to automate attacks and have it just scan anything that might be living. The goal nowadays isn't um, if we're just talking about automated attacks. It's not I I'm interested in you as a person. It's more I need yet another server on my botnet, and maybe later I will see if it's right. interesting. But they just need more resources, right? And so if they have the the more the better, and mm -hmm. and as they have more, they just use that foothold to get more. I mean that's why. Some of the more recent DDoS attacks have been from people's Internet of Things appliances sitting around their house because they were easy to hack. Um, an attacker got, you know, thousands upon thousands of them and then pointed them all in whatever direction they wanted and took down things. So, yeah, I mean, everyone has to be has to be concerned about it just because the, the attackers, for the most part, there's, you know, there's at least a group that doesn't really care about who you are. 
And then the ones that care about who you are, it just comes down to how sophisticated they are. And, you know, if we're talking at a certain level of sophistication, it's, you know, it's, it's very challenging. If you, you know, if you go anywhere from organized crime up to government, you know, level attacks, and they're targeted specifically at you, then depending on what you're trying to protect and how much and the resources that they have at their disposal, you know, it's, that can be very, that's very challenging, right? Because we're talking about people who can find out about everyone in your organization, find the key players, come up with a well-crafted phishing scam that looks 100% legit, knows personal details about the person they're emailing it to, to get someone to click a link, you know? Yeah. So something yeah. you said just now actually made me think, so we're talking about Internet of Things devices, and, and this is something that Doc and I have talked about um, before, and, and that is, you know, many of us, not all of us, but many of us increasingly have, we have so many devices. We, we carry around lots of personal connected devices. We, we have these uh, smart speakers and whatnot in our houses. We have them in our cars now. We have them in hotel rooms. You know, there's just so much data out there. And, and, and we've talked a lot about privacy in general and, and things like you mentioned, Facebook, uh, you know, giving people access to phone numbers and, and such as that. And, and I'm just wondering, like, what's your perspective on, on this question that we've had? And that is, you know, now that we've gone down this path and then there are all these um, all of these uh, devices in our lives, both from a privacy and security standpoint, like how do we sort of navigate this now? How do we how do we protect our privacy, but also our security? Because those those things are related. Um, I just wondered, you know, if you have some thoughts on that. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the first thing is Internet of Things should prove to should should shut down all of those smug Linux users who <laughs> like to talk about how secure Linux is. Right. Um, so right now, if you want to be a hacker on easy mode, you point yourself at an Internet of Things device and that and nine times out of ten, that Internet of Things device is running some form of embedded Linux. Right. And so mm. what that what that tells you is that, you know, one, you shouldn't be smug about that stuff anyway. But two, it's not strictly the OS that it's running. It's what it's the concern that the people who are making that device put into hardening the OS. And traditionally, embedded systems um, haven't even haven't put any thought into security, especially a low cost embedded system where the whole point is just to kind of get something out the door and the focus is on the hardware or the features and, and not really on security. I mean you'll you'll see you know security practices that from 10 years ago that people should have been doing just completely ignored. You know, I mean, it's it's like going back in time, which is why you see these so much in security conferences. People make such a to-do about Internet of Things and how I hacked this or that device. Um, it's because you can just go back in time to the hacks that worked against sophisticated people, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and they still work on these embedded devices. And it's just because th things are being rushed out the door. And it's not, it, there's no there's no financial incentive to make it a priority. Uh, to have somebody come and, and look into hardening these devices, unless they are a large, like say a Amazon or a Google or someone like that who already has a team they can throw at it. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's a big security risk. The other big one is that often the firmware you get on these things is so, sort of abandonware. And even if it's not, you as a consumer are, are not going to be sitting there checking whether your refrigerator has an update every week, you know? I mean, it's just not how it is. And it's not in as more and more things have some Linux server in them. 
you know, the, the end user is going to have a home network that's like a small enterprise as far as servers to patch. And it's ridiculous to expect the consumer to have to deal with that and have to keep it up to date. Yet, keeping it up to date is sort of what's necessary uh, to be able to, to at least try to protect them from being attacked. So is there hope? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think it sounds like there is. Is there yeah. hope for us? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the hope is that people are, I mean, you know, people are aware that this is a problem and more and more it's become the, the, the results from these hacks have been very public uh, to the point of, you know, major sites being taken down because Internet of Things devices were hacked and or you have some vigilante people who are, you know, reversing the hacks. They'll, they'll find exploited machines and try to clean them up or whatever. Um, no, I think that I think that there's hope that this stuff will change because it's just there hasn't been a light shown on it. For instance, um, like there's there's a, a big to do now about people talking about security in the power grid and these power grid machines that really in many cases have almost have very little um, as far as security goes. Um, and but a lot of it didn't never matter for a couple of decades because these were isolated machines. No one really looked at them or cared about cared about going into them unless they were a government. Um, but then now that they're getting a little bit of light shine shown on them, everyone's like, oh, wait, this is Swiss cheese. It's super easy to attack once you figure out how these things work. Um, and Internet of Things, fortunately, is more accessible because if you have one of those smart flash, smart light bulbs or whatever, that it has a little Linux machine in it. Um, so people are looking into those and, and the security issues are known. And so there, I think there's more and more pressure on manufacturers to sort of get it together. The question is, you know, it, are people going to vote for more secure devices with their wallets or not? Um, I guess if my, I'm hopeful that my hope is that I'm hopeful that people will, that people, you know, if, if your only concern is cost, then it's certainly a lot cheaper to create a light bulb with firmware where no one would no one bothered to pay for a third party to pin test it. Um, and it probably costs more to have a light bulb where someone cared about that. And so if you're a consumer that's only factors cost, I don't know, maybe you know you just kind of get what you pay for. Uh, I'm but my hope is that people will start seeing the negative consequences of making a choice like that and start at least factoring in things like is this device known to be secure, um, or is, does this device is this device easy to update? Does it update itself? Do I not even have to worry about it? Does it take care of it? Things like that. That's an excellent point. Wow. Well, so so yeah. So there there is hope then. We're not completely cooked yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, you know, it's funny. I've been in in the defense side of this forever. I mean. And I've been a system in for a super long time, and now I'm sort of focused full time on security. But I was always focused on security before as a system in two on the defense side. And people always like the common thing that people have always said is, well, you know, the, the defender has to protect against everything, can never be a mistake. A hacker only has to get in once, so the hacker has the advantage. And everyone sort of bought that as gospel. But, you know, now a lot of people now, myself included, are sort of pushing back against that that characterization and realizing, well, no, it's not that the attackers have all the advantages. In fact, the defenders have, can have, if they are willing to take the advantage, all the advantages or more advantage because we get to dictate the, the battlefield as it were. 
you know, the attacker has to has to come to our turf to attack us. And therefore, we get to decide what what the defenses are and what we're doing to protect us. So it's not it's not a hopeless thing at all. It's just a lot of people have thrown up their hands and acted like it's hopeless. But and then as a result, not done very basic things that if you did those basic things, you would at least remove, you know, a huge amount of the problem. So things like different passwords for different sites, remember them with a password manager. If we're talking about from an end user standpoint, if we're talking from a system standpoint, it really does come down to basic stuff like keep your software up to date, you know, figure out a way to push out updates to all of your, to, to test your servers for what version of software they're running, and then an automated way to patch all of those servers. I mean, it's not just for security. If you can do that, it makes your whole life as a sysadmin way easier. Um, and you just happen to get security along for the ride. So, I mean, those are just super basic things that if you can if you can figure out a way to do those things. And again, like in some instances, like the power grid, it's not always possible to patch, you know, or if you're talking about in, in healthcare, a lot of hospitals, you can't patch certain machines. Um, but if you can, a lot in a lot of cases, it's totally possible. It's just a matter of uh, the will to do it and being able to budget the time to put those systems in place. Well, thanks, Kyle. This has been fantastic. I am personally great. very glad yeah. that you're out there fighting the fight and, and designing the battlefield. <laughs> I love that analogy. Build us a good one, Kyle. <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks. Um, as usual, reach us at podcasts at one external.com. And thanks for listening.